0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today we're joined by Dr. Justin Dolan-Stover, Associate Professor of Transnational European History at Idaho State University, where he teaches courses on war and violence, modern Irish history and the two world wars. He holds a doctorate in history from Trinity College Dublin and has also held several research fellowships throughout Ireland and is currently a research fellow with the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study in Amsterdam, where I believe he's joining us from today. His new book, which we will be discussing, is entitled Enduring Ruin, Environmental Destruction During the Irish Revolution. Justin,
1: thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Aidan. Thank you for having me.
0: So I want to start with a very general question. Um, we're now coming to the close of, of a long decade of commemorating and maybe over-commemorating the 1912 to 23 period in Irish history. And there's been a huge number of studies of, of this period written from a, a, a lot of different methodologies, whether military history or political history or gender history. Um, and I wanted to start with a question that might sound kind of offensive. Uh, why do we need environmental history? What does that do for
1: us? No, I think that's a great question. Um, certainly the field is is crowded and the decade of centenia- centenaries has actually, I think, invited uh, more people to be to be writing on the period um, during its commemoration. Um, I think environmental history brings something that politics and the military history perhaps um, have missed. And uh, that is Looking at the dynamics of revolutionary violence or revolutionary politics, um, maybe in a more decentralized way. I know that Ireland is very fond of county based studies, um, particularly because of the ways in which the archive is organized. It really lends itself to a county based study. But I think an environmental um, study of the period allows you to look at uh, the everyday lives of individuals and how they were affected by revolutionary politics or violence, um, but also allows you to see the ways in which those politics and violence operated um, alongside environmental destruction, which very much impacted people's everyday lives. Um, The the methodology is one I think that was right out in the open in a lot of the material I looked at anyway, um, but was nevertheless one that's, that's maybe been downplayed a bit. And by that I mean In police reports, for instance, uh, at the county level, um, you often see reports of when, say, trees were felled um, in the same paragraph as you'd see news of an ambush. Um, you'd see the ways in which roads were trenched to prevent pursuit by rebels and how this disrupted, say, market days or individuals just trying to get from place to place. So what an environmental view, I think, does is one way, it it looks at the dynamics of of the violence that's taking place in a different way, Um, but also it allows us to see um, perhaps another, I don't know, another way of... Uh, engaging um, with the sources that have been so familiar to students of the period.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I know in my own study, in my own work, it, it's it's amazing how how massively Irish nationalists talk about the space of Ireland and their hopes for what will happen to that space once it becomes independent and how it'll it'll bloom and flower and things like that, uh, and and are using very environmental language. So you start with the Easter Rising and and your analysis in that chapter. Combines environmental history in this in this broad sense, in which you mean kind of the history of space and, and urban history, and as well as ecology, with um, what you call sensory history. Can you talk us through what you're analysing there?
1: Yeah, um, sensory history uh, comes to the fore in the in the study of the Easter Rising in the ways in which the Rising um, impacted the perceptions um, of Dubliners and, and of those who were happened to be in Dublin at the time of the Rising. Um, we don't have accounts that would be useful to environmental historians, such as the amount of CO2 that was released into the atmosphere during the fires that that took, say, the GPO. Um, but what we do have are intimate accounts of the ways in which landscapes were manipulated during the Rising, mainly for defensive positions of the rebels, um, but more impactfully um, by the ways in which Crown forces attempted to dislodge rebels from defensive positions. And it's through that and the use of artillery uh, which eventually begat fires, uh, as did looting, throughout the city, that really allowed um, the Easter Rising to become a sensory event. Uh, you have accounts of individuals who are dictating the scale and impact of the Rising based on, say, how much smoke is being observed in the sky, uh, the smell of Dublin that changes um, while these fires are raging, the smell of death in many ways, um, both of animals and of individuals. This is a week-long uh, endeavor, you remember, and so um, the smell of death and decay, as well as the sight um, of, of destruction are all sensory inputs that I think give a different weight to the rising to those who had observed it for sure.
0: So you kind of continue in that way, then, when you move into the later chapters and into the War of Independence, um, when you talk about how, as you say, Republicans militarized civilian and commercial spaces Um, And then later on, you said the IRA enlisted the land as a native fifth column in their guerrilla war against crown forces. So can you first of all tell us about the tactics that that the IRA was using and and how you can understand those tactics environmentally?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, First of all, militarized spaces takes on a a number of meanings uh, at a number of phases of the revolution. And you can see a militarized space is really anything uh, in which the nature um, and the composition of that space has changed typically uh, in ways that would that would have a military tone to it. So if there's a road blockade, uh, say the crown forces have erected in a town, barbed wire, sandbags, steel shutters on police barracks. This brings more of a militarized atmosphere, I think, to these previously civilian spaces or at least um, civilian in a, in a sense uh, that they could be understood. Um, but militarized spaces then become noticed during the War of Independence itself in the sense that the IRA used the land, as, I, as you mentioned, um, as, as you mentioned that I mentioned, um, <laughs> as, as this fifth column, as something that would um, perhaps offset military might of the British army uh, in Ireland. And by that, uh, I mean, particularly transportation routes uh, are altered through trenching, through tree felling to prevent the pursuit. Uh, by lorries full of soldiers or even soldiers on foot uh, to corral them into spaces for ambush. Um, this is noted on a massive scale, uh, too too big actually to, to pinpoint individually, um, but often in the record you'll see IRA veterans refer to their activity as, um, you know, continuously cutting trees or continuously trenching roads. Um, the destruction of bridges is something that's quite significant as well. Uh, these little bridges that crisscross the many uh, waterways big and small throughout Ireland, alter the landscape, but then alter the mobility that's able to be uh, uh, used in the pursuit of rebels uh, by Crown forces. Um, in response to these uh, manipulations of landscape and the violence that results through, through ambush, uh, you then see the militarization of a greater militarization of cities and towns in Ireland through reprisal that's carried out by Crown forces, um, either in the form of, of curfews um, of cancelled and restricted fares and of wholesale destruction of towns um, that really militarise um, Irish landscapes in the context perhaps of, of the wider First World War period in which individuals came to understand um, destruction on the continent and what it might look like uh, in Ireland.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so how then, if, if the IRA are being kind of clever or strategic in how they use the environment, how do British forces respond? Are they able to be uh, as clever?
1: Uh, maybe, maybe not clever, but um, forceful in their in their use of individuals, civilians, actually, to refill trenches, to clear roads. Um, obviously, the civilians are under a great deal of pressure to report on the activities of the IRA. Um, civilians are also very much at the forefront of the receiving end of raids um, on the individual home, which changes the composition of a domestic space. Uh, outright. And so uh, the cleverness, I think you can see in the faces on some of the uh, British soldiers that are in pictures in the uh, insert of the book, Uh, There's smiles in their faces when they come across a a felled tree. Um, So they're not exactly happy about it, but they almost recognize the ingenuity in using the land in that way. Um, But there's a great deal of uh, civilian coercion uh, that's used by Crown Forces and by the IRA um to clear or or retrench uh, roads so
0: so you have this obviously like very irish focus right within the book Mm. in in that you're literally looking at the spaces of ireland and the land of ireland Um, and yet you end by talking about the much bigger international context of this so how do you how do you balance the two of those how do you how do you do a history that's so focused on ireland but that has this international element to it also
1: I suppose it comes um, during my time at Trinity um, in the from about 2006 to 2011. I was very much under the influence of, of people like John Horne, who were talking about Ireland in the First World War in the greater context that we should perhaps view Ireland. And in that way, I looked at the destruction environmentally that occurred during the revolution Um, not on a par with anything that's happening in Europe. That's the whole point, I think, of the book, is to show that this is a non-industrial conflict, a guerrilla war that has its own very unique environmental impacts. Uh, But nevertheless, it's understood in a greater international context. Um, The Easter Rising, I think, is the best example of this because so many individuals um, who report on the sights, smells, and sounds that they experience in the capital Um, do so as a way of juxtaposing that with either what they've read or heard about what's happening in Belgium and France. And so to communicate um, the scale and the ferocity of damage, they turn to the greater European context that they would have been familiar with through newspaper reports. Um, But the same can be said during the War of Independence period, um, where individual Irish towns that that are destroyed, such as Cork, or Balbriggan are often compared to French and Belgian cities uh, that were that were quite recognizable uh, to individuals who are following um the course of the First World War. And so to end on a on a more international note, I think for me is to place the destruction experienced in Ireland in that bigger context of the of the greater uh war that's that we can observe. Um, but it's also a way to recognize the ways in which people on the ground would have perhaps and indeed, did um, contextualize their own understanding of destruction at the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've always found it fascinating that when when the rebels take Stephen's Green in Dublin during the Rising, the first thing they do is build a trench, which is which is one of the the dumbest things you can do strategically. <laughs> um, but they're they're clearly. They're thinking, well, this is what a war looks like, because this is what the Great War looks like.
1: This is what they're familiar with. And you're you're certainly right to say this is a very um, ill-advised move. Strategically, they're in the shadow of the Shelburne Hotel uh, and they're trenching into the ground, immobile, um, being overlooked by higher positions. So not principally the best military strategy, but certainly something that they would have been familiar with. Absolutely. So,
0: so obviously, as, as you mentioned, this comes out of work you were doing at Trinity as a, as a doctoral student. So wh- where will you go next? Will you do more environmental history work?
1: You know, that's a great question. And it's something that I've been kind of um, toying around with in my head while I've been here in the Netherlands on this research fellowship. And I'd really like to pursue two projects that come out of uh, the book I've just published. Um, and the first is... Um, a, a history of the 1920s and 30s in Ireland regarding uh, reconstruction and compensation and the restoration of landscapes. So I've spent this book talking about their destruction and their, margin, and their uh, militarization. And I'd like to look at the ways in which reconstruction was prioritized uh, in the wake of the Irish Revolution and in the early years of the in the Free State. And what, what we see, like we see in lots of European countries, say after the First World War, are problems with unemployment, um, the the Irish have a have an unemployment problem, but they also have, uh, in the files i have seen from the National Archives, solutions um, in the ways in which landscapes are being identified as places for work and for labour to be directed. You obviously also see the harnessing of the Shannon River and the hydroelectricity schemes in the 1920s. Um, but other other projects that I think are less known to students of the period, such as the massive afforestation projects uh, that are talked about in government circles and the planting of trees is kind of a way to cleanse Ireland of its colonial past as well. Ireland was significantly denuded of trees uh, by the 20th century Um, and so the first project I'd like to see come on the tail end of the book is one that looks at restoration and compensation and there's thousands and thousands of files on compensation for property damage to go through, so I won't have any any problem with the work there. The other project I think is a broader environmental history of modern Ireland. This will take a little bit longer, um, but uh, Irish scholarship is is. Um, it's not necessarily lacking in environmental voice. I think there's some great people, um, Juliana Adleman particularly, I've enjoyed her book on the 19th century animal in Dublin. Um, But a general vibe of environmental history seems to be quite low uh, in Irish studies. And so I think perhaps a larger, more ambitious project on looking at the environmental history of Ireland since the plantation um, might be a great introduction uh, of the subject to students of Ireland.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds like a, a massive, but very important project.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe a collected volume rather than an individual effort.
0: Sure. Well, if, if Enduring Ruin is anything to go by, um, it'll be a great book. Um, and obviously, Enduring Ruin itself is, is a really fabulous piece of work. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: It's been a pleasure and thank you for having me.